All Rise, the Ashley Murphy murder trial with Frank Graney, a News Talk original podcast. A woman in her 20s has died following an assault in County Offaly. The incident happened along the Canal Bank at Cappenker in Tullamore at around four o'clock this afternoon. Breaking news, the arrest made on suspicion of murder of Ashling Murphy, the school teacher. Joseph Puska of Linali Grove, Mukla County Offaly, appeared before a special sitting of Tullamore District Court last night. On the afternoon of the 12th of January last year, Ashley Murphy, a 23-year-old primary school teacher, was killed while exercising along the banks of the Grand Canal in Tullamore. Josef Pushka, a 33-year-old Slovakian man, is on trial for her murder. He has pleaded not guilty. I'm Frank Graney, courts correspondent for News Talk. And I'm Ashling Moore, radio producer. I'll be in the Central Criminal Court for every minute of the Ashley Murphy murder trial. And every evening we'll bring you a factual, accurate and balanced account of what the jury hears on any given day. And only what the jury hears. It's their job to decide on the facts of this case and they'll do so based only on the evidence presented to them at trial. And I should say that if you happen to be one of the jurors on this trial, then you've already been warned not to follow any of the media coverage and that includes this podcast. This is All Rise, the Ashling Murphy murder trial. Welcome to episode 17. The jury is out. So the jury began its deliberations today, which means the case now rests in their hands and their hands alone. Before they were sent out today, the judge spent several hours directing them on various legal principles, which they must follow when they approach the evidence. Mr Justice Tony Hunt told them they were bound by that evidence and that their decision must be unanimous. Once he had directed them on matters of law, he then entered their domain, the facts of the case, albeit just to sum up what they've heard over the last few weeks. He told them it was their assessment of the facts that mattered, not his. So Frank, we've entered the final and crucial stage of the trial and as the jurors begin their deliberations, they must follow certain very important legal principles. Absolutely. And those were, I suppose, pointed out to them um, by the judge today over the course of a number of hours. Um, In criminal trials, the role of the judge before sending a jury away is twofold. He or she, as the case may be, must direct the jury on any legal points that arise and must also sum up the case for the jury. It's called the judge's charge. And that's what a portion of yesterday's hearing and most of today's was concerned with. You may remember, as we explained in the very first episode of this podcast, uh, juries are drawn at random. It is considered a civic duty uh, to sit on a jury, or as Mr. Justice Hunt put it today, it's the equivalent of pulling on the green jersey. They represent all of us and their decisions on the facts must be accepted by the court. And one of the reasons that we have juries in trials is because they bring different life experiences to proceedings. Uh, Practicing lawyers are not allowed to sit on juries. So whoever does end up in the jury box is independent of the system. And as Mr. Justice Hunt said yesterday, uh, that's one of the important values that underlies jury trials. You're bound by the evidence and inferences arising from the evidence is what he said to the jurors. He told them that they must not speculate that that was simply making things up. Uh, There was no room for guesswork. If something isn't there, it's simply not there. And when it came to weighing up the evidence, he said that's entirely up to them. Um, He said that if he appeared in his charge uh, to make views or, or comments in relation to the facts, he told them to please not adopt those views unless, of course, uh, they agree with them. And in relation to 
I suppose, the fundamental legal principles that apply in every single criminal case, including this one. Uh, Mr. Justice Hunt spoke of the presumption of innocence. Uh, Josef Puska has pleaded not guilty to the murder of Ashley Murphy. So he is entitled to that presumption of innocence. And as he was explaining that to uh, the jury, Mr. Justice Hunt read from a very important Supreme Court judgment uh, that spoke about the presumption of innocence as an open mind uh, that assumes nothing against the accused unless the prosecution proves a reasonable doubt in relation to the evidence. And he said to the jurors in this case that they must start by presuming that what Josef Pushka is saying is correct. Again, because he has pleaded not guilty, he has that presumption of innocence. And he gave an example, an example of Mr. Pushka cycling around Tullamore that afternoon. Uh, The jurors in the court has been shown the CCTV compilation that shows that the prosecution claims that he is following women. Uh, Beata Borowska and Anne-Marie Kelly gave evidence to uh, the jurors and the prosecution. It is their case that he was following them around Tullamore that day, while the defence says that he's just cycling around in his usual way. So they're obviously two uh, very uh, different views of the evidence. And the starting point, when you consider that fundamental legal principle of presumption of innocence, the starting point is what Josef Pushka said. Uh, Mr. Justice Hunt said that it informs how the jurors should look at the evidence moving forward. So they take what he said, they test what he said, and then they move on uh, from there based on whether or not they believe what he's saying or if there's a reasonable doubt in relation to what he is saying. That is another important legal principle that he got to uh, today. But before that, he spoke about the burden of proof. And he said in criminal trials, the defence don't have to do anything. Uh, The accused can say nothing. Uh, There's no burden on the defence to prove anything in a case. It is entirely on the other side uh, of the aisle, the prosecution. The prosecution must prove the allegation. It's not up to the defence to disprove it or to prove their own version of events. Uh, The burden is firmly on the prosecution at all times and it doesn't change at all throughout. Um, It can only be set aside, the presumption of innocence that is, can only be set aside by the prosecution proving uh, its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And and also um, in relation to Mr. Pushka's decision to cross the floor and to give evidence, as he did uh, last week, the jurors were told that he doesn't accept any burden of proof by doing that. Again, the onus rests on the prosecution. He spoke about um, beyond a reasonable doubt, the very high standard um, that prosecutors have to prove their case by the more serious the issue that has to be decided, the more demanding the standard of proof very high standard is demanded in criminal trials, um, particularly, you know, murder cases, potentially life changing decisions. So a high standard of proof is required. And the judge said that it's not about being convinced to a mathematical certainty of 100 percent. He said that's not possible. Human affairs can't be proven with that level of certainty. He said there's nothing certain in this life. And he used the proverb apart from death and taxes. He described a reasonable doubt as one based on reason, obviously, and also common sense. And he said that if there is a reasonable doubt in relation to the evidence, then the jury must give the accused, in this case, obviously, Josef Pushka, and the benefit of that doubt. He said to the jurors that they carry the can, that they can take risks in their own life when it comes to big decisions like getting married or taking on a new job or buying a house. Um, they can make those risks um, and make decisions based on those risks even where there is a reasonable doubt. But he said they can't do the same when it comes to an accused person in a criminal trial. 
it's very different um, in terms of civil cases. You know, down the Keys here in Dublin City, you have the four courts where, you know, a lot of civil businesses conducted. And the standard of proof there is based on the balance of probabilities where one person's, if one person's case is probably more likely than the others, uh, then that is sufficient. But that's not the case. It's a much higher standard of proof when it comes to criminal trials. And Mr. Justice Hunt was at pains to point that out to the jurors. Um, he said to them that they cannot convict if they think that he is probably guilty. That's not good enough. It doesn't meet that standard of proof. He said they must try and resolve conflict where it arises, bearing in mind the presumption of innocence and the high standard of proof required for the prosecution to set that presumption aside. The judge also spent some time directing the jurors on how to approach the evidence. He told them to decide the case on the evidence only and not to be influenced by anything else. Mm -hmm. He told them to ignore personal likes or dislikes and to divorce sympathy from the case. Yeah, and he said that it would be obvious to have sympathies with Ashley Murphy and with her family. But again, as you say, um, he told them that they must set that to one side. He said it was also possible to have sympathy for an accused person in a case. But again, he said that too must be set aside. He told the jurors that they must leave aside prejudice and that they mustn't be afraid of their verdict. And he went on to um, tell them to assess each witness carefully, to assess their memory, uh, their manner, whether they appear to have an interest in the outcome of the case, uh, whether they have bias or a prejudice. He said that if they think that a witness is lying, uh, they may choose not to believe them or to accept parts that they think are true. And he said to assess them as human beings before pointing out the obvious that as human beings, we all have deficiencies and nobody is perfect. He told them that if they believe what Yosef Pushka said to them, they must act on that in the same way that they would act on believable evidence from any other uh, witness. And if they don't accept part of it, but still think, still think some of it might be reasonably true, uh, then again, he said they're obliged to act on his testimony. But he said, if they reject it, all of it or some of it, he said, they must put it to one side and they must then go back to the prosecution case to see if the rest of the evidence has been proven uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. So to sum up, he told the jurors um, again in his charge that if they believe Mr. Pushka's version of events or if they believe there is a reasonable possibility of what he told them, uh, then they must acquit him as no crime has been committed by him. And in that event, he said Mr. Pushka is a victim of crime and of circumstance, a misunderstood good Samaritan. Turning his attention to the jury's domain then, the facts of this case, Mr. Justice Hunt said it was their assessment of the facts that mattered, not his. The evidence is the evidence, he said, before urging them to decide on the facts first, before then applying the law to them. And over the next few hours, he went through the various parts of the case, including Mr. Pushka's confession at St. James's Hospital, the DNA evidence, inference evidence, lies and eyewitness evidence. Yeah, and taking those parts that you've mentioned in sequence, he said they first have to decide if a confession was made in the first instance, if the actual words were spoken by Mr. Pushka at St. James's Hospital. He said it doesn't seem to him that there's an issue um, about the words spoken, but again, that that is a matter for the jury. He said a number of issues have been raised as to whether the jury can rely on the confession. And he told them that they must be satisfied uh, that it is true, reliable and accurate. 
if they have any reasonable doubt in relation to it, he said that they then must put them to one side and to leave them out of the case. He said that the confession is attacked on the basis of Mr. Pushka's fitness to engage with the process. He said uh, the guards had been criticised for their actions and he told the jurors that they must uh, analyse uh, what they did or perhaps what they didn't do at St. James's Hospital. They must ask themselves if they have any reasonable doubt in relation to the propriety of steps taken. And he said that if they thought there is a reasonable possibility that the guards deliberately sidestepped the doctors um, when it comes to assessing Josef Pushka's fitness to be interviewed by them. And if they then went in and interviewed a man who was unfit to speak to them um, in relation to the search warrant that was executed about the hospital and questions about what happened in Tullamore, then he said to the jury that they must discount uh, those confessions. And before moving on, He said, common sense suggests that police don't always deal with people in pristine condition. They often deal with people in unfamiliar environments who don't speak uh, the native language. But he told the jurors that it was up to them, uh, that they are duty bound to examine both sides of the argument, the prosecution's argument and also the defence's. In relation to the DNA evidence, specifically the prosecution's claim that Mr. Pushka's DNA was found underneath Ashley Murphy's fingernails, Mr. Justice Hunt told the jurors they'd have to ask themselves if there was a reasonable possibility that it belonged to somebody else. An expert told the jury that there was a 1 in 14,000 chance of it belonging to someone other than Mr. Pushka. But the judge warned the jurors not to fall into what he described as the prosecution's fallacy and to examine that evidence for themselves. And he also explained the law around a suspect's right to silence when they're being interviewed about a crime. That's right. The law of statutory inferences. And this is relevant in terms of Mr. Pushka's fifth and final interview at Tullamore Garda station. Every suspect has a right to stay silent um, during interview, but it's not an absolute right, as the jurors were told today. And the law does allow for it to be modified in certain very specific circumstances that are set down in legislation. A very limited number of topics can be asked uh, under that particular uh, piece of legislation and certain rules apply. Uh, Garthi must tell the suspect uh, that they believe the evidence is evidence of that person's involvement of a crime. Um, This cannot be sprung on a suspect. Uh, They must be given notice of it. It must take place after ordinary interviews have taken place. And that was the case here, as Mr Justice Hunt said. Uh, There were four ordinary interviews uh, before this fifth and final inference interview took place Um, and also uh, suspect must be given the topics in advance as I say they must be given notice and they must be allowed to consult with their solicitor before those questions are put to them and if they then fail or refuse to account for those things a jury can take them into account if they're satisfied that those matters call for an explanation they're not I should say entitled to convict solely on inference evidence and it can only be used to corroborate uh, other pieces of evidence. And specifically in relation to this case, uh, Mr. Pushka, you may remember, was asked to account for a, a number of things in that final interview at Tullamore Garda station, uh, specifically the possession of the bike. Uh, that's the bike that was found at the crime scene near uh, Ashleen's uh, body. The Falcon Storm mountain bike, it was linked to him uh, through DNA found on the handlebars. Um, also, the DNA found under uh, the fingernails of Ashley Murphy, uh, marks and scratches that were visible on his hands, uh, face and head, and also his presence at 
uh, the location. So the Gardaí wanted him to account for all of those things under this inference uh, legislation. And he decided, the jury has already heard, not to give explanations. And Mr Justice Tony Hunt said to the jurors today that they can judge if that decision by Mr Pushka is a failure to answer the questions put to him. And he said that they were being asked to draw adverse, negative inferences from the fact that he didn't answer the questions, uh, that he didn't have any answer or innocent explanation in relation to what was asked of him. He was also given an opportunity at the end of his interview to say anything that he might later rely on. And again, he chose not to. And since then, we know we know um, that he has given evidence to this jury uh, only last week about what he claims happened that afternoon. But when he was interviewed some 20 months or so ago now, uh, the jury was told that he no- made no mention of it. And they were told that they can only draw that adverse or negative inference if they are satisfied that they are simply matters that were made up more recently. If there's an innocent explanation for not saying anything at the time, then they cannot draw an adverse inference. As Mr. Justice uh, Tony Hunt put it today, you can't breathe life into something unless it already has vitality. The prosecution relies on what they say is the telling of lies by Mr. Pushka and the jury was told today they'd have to try and identify where the lies are. But Mr. Justice Hunt had a warning for the jurors when it comes to the examination of lies. Yeah, like lies, like everything else, must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, The jurors were told today that defendants may lie for innocent reasons and they were told that they can only rely on lies if they're sure that they weren't told out of innocent reasons and that the lie supports the prosecution's case. Um, Mr Justice Tony Hunt told them people can tell lies to bolster a true defence, to conceal matters that look bad but aren't necessarily bad, to perhaps protect somebody else. Um, People can tell lies out of embarrassment, out of shame, panic, confusion. And in relation to Mr Pushka, one of the examples that was given, and he does accept that he told a lie uh, to Garthi at St. James's Hospital um, in relation to a stabbing incident at Blanchardstown. He claimed that he had been stabbed by two men when he stepped out of a taxi in Blanchardstown. And in relation to that, he said that he lied to protect his family. So the jury was told that in relation to lies, if they find that it's a reasonably possible uh, explanation, well, then they don't treat the lie as supportive of guilt. Uh, Mr. Justice Hunt told the jurors that they must look at the full canopy of of possibility for telling lies. And he told them not to jump into conclusions uh, that a person uh, isn't guilty just because a lie was told. And if there is an innocent explanation, again, he said that you can't use the lie against them. Uh, but if they are satisfied that he told lies to cover up guilt, then they can use those lies against him. The judge spent some time going through the evidence of certain witnesses, including Jenna Stack. He said every witness's evidence must be scrutinised. And in her testimony, Miss Stack told the jury she came upon a man attacking a girl in a hedgerow along the canal. The prosecution believes she witnessed Mr Pushka attacking Ashling, but he insists she misread the situation and he was actually trying to help her after she was attacked by the same man who stabbed him along the canal. That's right. And in her evidence, she told the jury that she could see that man's face clearly. Uh, She said that when she approached the hedgerow to see what was going on, she had heard some noises. She described how through gritted teeth, 
Uh, she said the man angrily told her to go away. Uh, she described him as having a foreign accent, uh, receding hair, a shaved head, sallow skin, distinctive, dark, bushy eyebrows, a dark stubble and a padded jacket that was zipped up. And she thought that it perhaps had a stamp on it on the left hand side, on the breast part of the jacket. In relation to Jenna Stack, we know that she picked out the wrong man in an ID parade the day after Ashling was murdered. Um, so the defence has raised question marks over the reliability of her evidence. The prosecution argues that just because she made that mistake doesn't mean uh, the jury should bin all of her evidence. And in relation to her evidence, Mr Justice Hunt today told the jurors that she got it wrong um, and that they absolutely had to look at that very carefully. They have to ask themselves that if that reduces their confidence in relation to all of her other evidence. And he said that that's the difficulty when it comes to identification evidence, that people often get it wrong. He said the law recognises that, that errors are often made. And he said that they would have to approach the rest of her evidence with what he described as critical scrutiny. And he said that they decide whether they can accept all of it or part of it. That's obviously up to them. He then ran through the evidence of all the other witnesses in the case, including, and I won't get all of them in here, but the first responders, the guardian, and the paramedics who were first at the scene, uh, other civilian witnesses who arrived at the scene after the alarm was raised, the two women that the prosecution claims Mr. Pushka was following earlier that day, Beata Barovska and Anne-Marie Kelly, uh, Mr. Pushka's friend, Rostislav Pokuta, the forensic scientists, the detectives who spoke to Mr. Pushka at St. James's Hospital. Uh, the list goes on. He went through them all. But he spent some time um, finally on the testimony of Josef Pushka himself. He reminded the jury of his version of events and what the prosecuting barrister Anne-Marie Lawler put to him under cross-examination, specifically uh, in her view that he was lying about what happened at the canal uh, that afternoon and that he wasn't helping Nashlin as he claims. She said he was there because he was the one who murdered her. And before sending them out to begin their deliberations, Mr Justice Hunt had some final words of advice for the nine men and three women of the jury. Yeah, he began by telling them that it is very important that all 12 of them participate in uh, the deliberations. And just to get, I suppose, a housekeeping matter out of the way, he then told them that when they begin their deliberations, when they return to the jury room uh, to consider the evidence, that they must first select one person to preside over the deliberations. He said that it doesn't have to be the jury for, for a person, uh, but that it was entirely up to them. And as um, chairperson of the deliberations, he said, um, they should make sure that everybody's views are elicited. Uh, they will uh, communicate with the judge as well uh, if the need arises. He told the jurors to make sure that there was a proper cross discussion of contrary views. Uh, he said that it was important again for all of them to contribute. Um, he said that the verdict must be unanimous, uh, whether guilty or otherwise. He said it must be a decision uh, where all 12 of the jurors are in agreement. Um, he told them that they must decide the case for themselves. They must consider all of the evidence. They must discuss it fully. They must listen to the views of their fellow jurors. And he told them not to be afraid to change their opinion. That may happen throughout their uh, deliberations. And he told them not to be afraid of it. Um, he told them not to come to a decision because others think they're right and they decide to just uh, go along with their decision. He told them uh, not to change an honest belief 
uh, just in the interests of reaching a verdict. He said, that's not allowed. That's not appropriate. He told them to apply themselves in a clinical way, not in the way he said that football managers do after a game. He said to approach it as doctors do clinically without emotion. He said emotion is no place in the jury room. It must be left at the door. And to finish, he said that at the end of the day, if they are satisfied of Mr. Pushka's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, then they must convict. But if they believe him and feel that he is a victim of circumstance, a misunderstood good Samaritan, then they must acquit. The jurors then at that point filed out of course 13. That by my clock was at 25 minutes to four this afternoon with the judge's final words ringing in their ears. Mr. Justice Hunt said to them, you have to decide what you accept and what you don't. When you're left with what you accept, just ask yourselves, is that enough? Does it prove the crime of murder? That's it for episode 17 of All Rise, the Ashling Murphy murder trial. Having been sent out just after half past three this afternoon, the jury was sent home at four o'clock and they will resume their deliberations in the morning. I'm Frank Graney, Courts Correspondent for News Talk. I'll be in court every day for the duration of this trial. You can follow me on X at Frank Graney for updates and make sure you follow this podcast, All Rise, the Ashley Murphy murder trial for an impartial and comprehensive account of what happens in court on any given day. All Rise, the Ashley Murphy murder trial was hosted by Frank Graney and Ashling Moore with sound design by Lachlan Hart. Follow the podcast on Newstalk.com, on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, or wherever you get your podcasts.